3: Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play.
2: Thank you listeners for joining us for our special podcast all about the moon as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hello. Production editor Neil McKim. Hello. And staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to James Burke, the former presenter of Tomorrow's World who reported on the Apollo missions for the BBC. And we'll tell you our top stargazing sight to see in this month's night sky. On the 21st of July 1969, Neil Armstrong made history by becoming the first human being to ever set foot on the moon. Here at BBC Sky Night magazine, we've taken a look back over the mission in both our July and August issues.
3: Yes, uh, an event so big and momentous that we had to do it twice. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it really is. It's one of the the most historic um, uh, events, I think, in 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 history, mm-hmm. uh, certainly one of the greatest engineering feats um that, that uh, as ever as ever well it's, happened. Yeah. it's
2: it's one of those things that that when people talk about you know a big momentous occasion now people talk about the moonshot. Yeah. You know, yeah. trying yeah. to do something impossible. Mm. So it's kind of entered into people's vocabulary. So
0: yeah, there's yes. a, there's, a, there's that thing, isn't there? Like um, if something goes wrong, people say, "Well, you know, we can put men on the moon, but we can't." Yeah, you know, blah yeah, blah blah. That's right. That mm. Part that's of the right. vernacular
3: now. Yeah, no, it is. It's kind of entered um, popular culture. Um, it's so good. I mean, one of the, one of the things that um, uh, has been really interesting this issue is um, the work we did on um, on the landing sites actually, and and. Um, all the stuff around that was just such an interesting thing because um, I, w- I was looking into how they were how they were chosen, and um, they, they spent NASA spent a, l- a very long time and set up a um, uh, an AP- Apollo site selection board uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to take everything into consideration uh, and make sure that um, they had a, all the all the information based on you know really really good um, um, data and stuff. So they had um, they had. Surveyor landers on the moon already mm-hmm. um, And they also had um, The lunar orbiter spacecraft mm. uh, Orbiting orbiting the moon At the time and I think by about 1967 it had hit, it had Photographed 99% of the Lunar surface so they, they had These really quite detailed maps And they were poring over them looking for um, You know sites That were smooth and obstacle Free mm. um, So that the uh, lunar module wouldn't
0: Encounter any uh uneven terrain when it landed um it's kind of incredible the the uh, time scales when you're talking about apollo because you kind of think oh sure this must have been decades in the in the planning but when you think like kennedy's speech was like what 61 62 61. 61
2: i think yeah. they said they they sort of signed the legislation of we are going to the moon in yeah. 1962,
0: yeah. before it's, they even knew how they were going to do it. Yes, yeah. they yeah. were
2: they were um yeah. in in the early 60s, sort of 1960 61. They were only just doing the Ranger mission, which was literally we're going to send a robot up there and smash into it, mm. <laughs> and yeah. then you know eight years later, they're they're managing to put a, a person thing, down. They? Yeah, yeah.
3: But there was it's not just the kind of um, how do you get a, a you know, a person to the moon or a crew to the moon. It's how do you you know, you've got to build the build the r- vehicle to get there. Mm. You've got to um, you know, recce the landing site. Yeah. You've got to do all these things. But mm. you've got to all do them at exactly the same time as well. So yeah. you know, a kind of um, and work on how you're gonna get them back. Yeah.
2: Yes. That was the important <laughs> thing.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's get the, that was the caveat. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. And bring Indeed. them back. Yeah. So what one of the I mean it wasn't just the um the 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 Geography on the moon that was uh, they considered. Um, the other thing they had to consider was um, how much fuel the the lunar module had. Um, so mm. it had, you know they had to they had to take that in consideration. I think that was
2: why most of them, if you look at all of the landing sites, are all around the equator. Yes, because um, the the spin of the moon gives you a little bit of a extra boost to get back off again. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So you don't
3: need as much. You don't need to carry as much fuel, and you're mm-hmm. not so heavy then. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that I I thought was really interesting was that they. Uh, it wasn't just that they had to take um, lighting into consideration as well. So they had to look at the phase of the moon at the time that they were going to be there and pick somewhere that was well lit enough so that the crew mm. could use the craters and other features um, for navigation. Mm. So they had, you know, they, they were it would be no good at kind of when the terminator was sweeping past and it was all in darkness and like, oh, we can't see anything. <laughs> you know, and it was just as well that the um, that that they was in, in daylight because when they actually came to land, they it was this um this is the famous thing where Neil Armstrong took manual control from the um Apollo guidance computer and um for the for the for the last kind of 150 meters of the descent mm-hmm. to the lunar surface, um, flew it manually. Um and this is when you had um people in mission control tearing their hair out. Um Saying you know, sixty seconds of fuel left, thirty seconds of fuel left, um, and because they, when he got to about one hundred and fifty meters, he saw that there was a boulder field, and they were heading right for that, and it would have been a nightmare to land on it. So, yeah. he, he took of control and flew over to a, a space that was a bit, a bit smoother.
2: This is the thing that that gets me when you when you look at these sort of early space missions, is you 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 sort of don't realise just exactly how basic the technology was i mean everybody yeah. talks about you know your, your washing machine has more processing power than apollo 11 but if you look back at like the very early lunar probes they had um on board uh film mm. like chemically mm. that they had to chemically develop on board and then read in Um the the, the timers were all clockwork Crazy, yeah. people had to do everything by hand it was it's just and um, you know, this they did something with that technology that we can't do today.
0: Mm. Yeah, they didn't. I mean, they didn't even have pop, pocket calculators. No. You know, just no. even stuff like that that you would take for granted.
2: Yeah, they had like slide rules and things. Yeah. Yes.
3: I think what was it, I was um, looking at a photo the other day and it was um, Ed White in a, I think it was a Gemini mission uh, when he went out for one of the first spacewalks and uh, he had a funny thing in his, he was carrying a, a thing that looked like a small radiator in his in his in his hands. And that was a um uh, a manoeuvrability device. So it was literally a handheld um a, a couple of gas canisters and a nozzle <laughs> and with a handle that you pressed you you pulled you push the handle and a little bit of gas flew out and it moved you over where you <laughs> wanted to go.
2: <laughs> if it works. It works.
3: <laughs> and you know that develops into kind of obviously um Bruce McCandless on the um on the space shuttle but oh, yeah. he was in this awesome chair with joysticks and he was like you know moving around and stuff that's that's the kind of thing you imagine mm. but yeah, it all started out it's you know like a- very very basic cuz it it's so interesting yeah
0: but j- just just thinking back to that landing and just 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 the the ability for Armstrong and Aldrin to just stay stay cool under pressure i mean i, th- I think it goes without saying that you know ha- had i been in charge of, land- of landing the lunar lander i don't think we would have don't think we would have made it. I mean, just it's unbelievable. The just... number yeah. of yeah. things
2: that went wrong, yeah. as well as the yeah. you, the the having to take up manual control, um, they nearly had to abort. I think three times mm. Um, mm. for various different reasons. Um, when Buzz went to open the hatch, he couldn't. Because the pressure hadn't equalised properly, and he had to peel back the seal with his fingers to, to release that last bit of pressure to get the door open. And yeah. it, they, but they just—it's like no, oh, there's another problem. We've dealt with it. We'll move on. Another problem. Yeah. Dealt with it. We'll move on.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can see what like why they kind of choose. F- fighter pilots, yeah, as Apollo astronauts, yeah. yeah. Like who, all... who else is going to keep cool under fighter yeah. pilots and test pilots? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And and back up on the moon, they, um, you know, when they got out, um, when they did peel back the uh, the seal, eventually <laughs> got out. They they got out and left behind um a lot of um, uh, equipment uh, and and experiments and things that, um, you, you know, uh, they can't be seen from Earth because they're just too small, mm-hmm. um, even with the biggest telescopes. Um, but um, in 2011, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, um, which orbits the Moon at um, a height of uh, 50 kilometers, um, managed to um, take a very high-resolution image of the surface, and um, it found le- it, it managed to capture um, all the all the kind of um, science apparatus there. Uh, the seismic experiment package, the laser ranging retroreflector, and even the tracks that the astronauts crea- created when they um made their their eVA their extra vehicular activity um, and they traveled they walked about a kilometer um in the two and a half hours that they spent on the on the lunar surface and um, they walked up to the edge of a of a little crater that they landed next to and and uh took a picture of their hmm of the lunar module sitting there um, and then collected some samples and stuff. So, you know, all that stuff is, is, has been imaged um, from, from the, uh, from the, from lunar orbit. So we know it is still there. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I think it was like <clears throat> maybe a month or, or two ago. And um, like even, even now they're, they're still getting data from it. There was a, a study that came out um about moon, moon quakes and kind of new mm. data showing mm. that that the that the moon is shrinking and it's causing these quakes and that was all from well not all from but it was a lot of a lot of the data came from those uh, seismometers yeah. that the Apollo astronauts put in the moon.
3: Yes, no, that's that's interesting. It's not just the um, moon quakes. it's the the the, ret- the lunar rising, ranging ranging um has helped them measure the speed at which the moon is actually drifting away from the yeah. From the Earth, so that's slowly, that's like a, a
2: device that they have on the Moon. You you fire a laser at it from Earth, it bounces off, comes straight back to to the person, and you can tell by the, the time that it takes very very precisely exactly the distance that that retroflector is away. Yeah,
3: yeah. But it's not just um, all this useful scientific stuff that they left on the Moon. Um, I think you've been looking at some in- interesting things, haven't you, Neil? Yeah, I've been.
4: <laughs> yeah, I've been looking at some of the weird. Stuff, some of the uh, junk that's been left on the moon. Uh, <laughs> and there's loads and loads of rubbish on there. Um, and they reckon it weighs about 181,000 kilograms. What? Uh, and Is that's th- including the rovers and the. Oh, yeah, that's, yes, that's right, between yeah. all oh, of all the missions, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Landing, yes. yeah, yeah. And yeah. And all the wow. descent stages yeah. and everything. Um, Not just their crisp packets. Yeah, that's right. There. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some. Um, Interesting artifacts. Um, there's 96 bags of human waste. Good lord! Okay, yeah. that's
2: that's a lot. Yeah.
4: Apparently, these were in. Um, they were called defecation collection devices. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Charming. Um, and those have been left there. And apparently, um, biologists are interested in researching these to see see what sort of state they're in, if they ever get them. Oh, because mm. they've been mm. sat
2: on the moon mm. yeah. being subjected to <laughs> Radio- um, radiation, radiation
4: yeah. and yeah. The, mm. all that sort of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, but there's, there's, there's a whole variety of stuff that's, um, that was left partly intentionally um, and there was a um, a silicon disk that's got um, microscopic messages from world leaders, which was taken oh, wow. on Apollo 11. Um and 73 countries were involved in this, and it's the size of a 50-cent piece. Amazing. Um, and there's a there's an ancient NASA press release, which is all hand-typed, and it's got mm. these messages all spelt out, and they've got <laughs> oh, wow. some quite surprising people on there uh, mm. of the time. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek from China, once uh, world peace through the universe, mm-hmm. and uh, military dictator... Uh, Joseph Mobutu of the Democratic Republic of Congo Mm. um, has put a message um, talking about the conquest of space in order to make man its master. Okay, (laughs) Slightly different point of view there. Um, And there's also very encouraging words from our own queen uh, who salutes the skill and courage which brought men to the moon.
0: Mm. Uh, that's mm, a nice, nice. one that's, yeah, yeah. that's a good one cool. <laughs> um, wow, that's excellent
4: but um, amongst the other things there's um, $20 bills and $2 $2 bills bought um, by Dave Scott and Jim Irvin on Apollo 15 um, and they took them up as um, they wanted to be moon touch souvenirs so they uh, wanted to take right. them up uh, to mm. the surface and bring them back um, but they they left quite a lot up there so there's a lot of cash still up there uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's there's more well-known stuff like there's a picture of Charlie Duke's family mm. his wife and two kids mm. and there's also the two golf balls um that Alan Shepard um was uh, firing with his six iron that he'd attached to a lunar excavator handle nice the, the,
2: the thing I yeah. like about that is apparently <laughs> is it Charlie Duke did you say yeah yeah
4: um Alan Shepard Alan Shepard. Yeah, yeah.
2: he he apparently smuggled the golf club on board
4: oh right okay I'm,
2: I'm not entirely sure how you managed to, considering <laughs> the number of people that they would have been yeah. like re-weighing that checking everything but he somehow managed to sneak it on board uh, yeah Um.
3: He probably had it down <laughs> his trouser leg and it was just walking yeah. he pretended he had a stiff knee like, yeah. yeah. or something like yeah. That. Yeah. Ooh, yeah yeah, yeah. But, um, I yeah, guess yeah,
4: they probably don't have customs, do they? No, <laughs> I know
2: those. Uh, they did have pretty stringent planetary protection, though. They, they, were, they, were, they yeah. weren't so so concerned yeah. about what you took up, provided you know it wasn't a corned beef sandwich that was going to get in the controls, which I believe happened to somebody. Um, but but it,
0: but it was just that like all the weight was accounted for, wasn't yeah. it? Every single gram had to be yeah. necessary, wasn't yes, it? Yes,
4: that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah so there's the, um and NASA have said that um they're hoping that future missions will be able to analyze all this rubbish and uh, see how it's been weathered by radiation mm.
3: and the vacuum of space um that's interesting to tell us something about how the materials kind of perform in um yeah and the, over a uh, over long over uh, a long period of time yeah, yeah. and that yeah. and that's
4: something also with the flags there's seven flags oh, yeah. um five of which are still standing apparently yeah um <laughs> One of them, Buzz Aldrin reported, was knocked over by mm. by Apollo Eleven.
2: One of the, the 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 things that I found out when I was looking up the about Apollo Eleven was apparently the flag was just bought from a lo- local store.
1: Yeah, yeah they they yeah. sort of
2: got towards the end of the mission and went, "Oh, we're going to need a flag," and had to send somebody out to go and grab one. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. like you think these incredibly. Historic images were just somebody's last-minute idea.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, apparently, it was yeah. bought in a shop in Houston, Texas, for five dollars and fifty cents. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose like the, the the flag is kind of one of the main things because because we did want to talk about about kind of conspiracy theories a bit in this podcast, um, mm. not kind of giving them too much weight, but at least discussing them. Mm. Um, and one of the one of the things that people mostly talk about is is uh, why did the flag flutter? Uh, or appear to flutter in as if there's wind and this kind of leads people to think that you know NASA mm. had, had faked the whole thing. I mean, you can watch the uh, flag planting on, on YouTube and if you watch it I mean, it doesn't flutter beyond them twisting it into the ground which is, mm. it's going to flutter anyway and it was like, it was hemmed at the top and there was like a horizontal boom mm. I guess so mm. that's why it just sits draped and mm. shortly after they've finished fixing it into the ground, obviously because there's less air resistance it kind of flutters a bit longer than you would normally expect but it does just stay still. When you be watching it, hmm. when you watch the flag planting video back, you kind of think, "What are they on about?" It doesn't really flutter. I mean,
3: it's, it follows the laws of physics, doesn't it? I mean, if you if you twist something, it's gonna yeah, it's gonna follow suit and move in that direction. So that's all it's doing, isn't it?
0: Exactly. I I suppose the the other big conspiracy theory is um, people kind of say in the photos where there are no stars in the background, and that's something that people still we, we people still talk about. Um, whenever you get. Um, uh, photos of astronauts on the ISS performing spacewalks, people kinda say, why are there no stars in the background? But I always kinda think that like if you if you take one of those photos on a summer on a summer evening of your family, maybe you're outside in a barbecue and it's got dark and you take a photo. Mm-hmm. You can't see the stars in the night sky even if it's clear. Yeah, it's just if, all about exposure, isn't it? And, if, if someone yeah, manages to yeah. take a
2: single exposure of a person in perfect light with the stars in the background, I would be very impressed. you have yeah. to leave Exposure for at least several seconds, mm. at which point yeah. y- your person's completely blown out.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah, that's right.
0: Uh, people often point yeah. to the, uh, the Van Allen belts, which are these kind of areas of high energy charged particles that, that surround Earth. Mm. Um, how did the astronauts get beyond them? Well, like NASA was aware of that, and they they kind of charted a course and made sure that it wouldn't really affect them. But in any case, they were going they were going quite quickly through them, it wasn't like they kind of ling- lingering around, and they were obviously shielded by the by the mm, spacecraft, mm. which was designed to deal with that radiation. Mm.
3: That's right, um interestingly the um the astronauts did re- report um seeing flashes of white in their vision, oh, even yeah. when they closed their eyes, and that was actually high you know highly charged particles passing Whoa. passing through them
2: yeah the the apparently the i s s astronauts still get that sometimes yeah, not not yeah. as much, not but as much, no. yeah they, they sort of still they're trying to get to sleep, and suddenly there's this bright flash of light, yeah, yeah. which is a cosmic ray hitting their retina.
0: And it's obviously, yes. I mean, it's something that, especially with, like, um, Scott Kelly's year in space, like the kind of twin twin experiment that he and his brother did, um, they you know, we still don't really know the effects of the radiation from space on the human body. And it's something that kind of scientists are still trying to work out. But I suppose one of the well, the, the other main conspiracy theories that people kind of um, come up with is, you know, wh- why haven't we been back to the to the moon? But, like... We have, if you think about it, because like <laughs> yeah. China's Chang'e four recently landed, and there's, like the lunar Recon- reconnaissance orbiter, which yes. uh, has taken images of the lunar landing sites, mm. um, and you know there are there are plenty of kind of future lunar missions in the pipeline now, aren't there? Yes. Yeah, that's right.
2: Um, there definitely was a a big gap. Um, the the last missions to the moon um, were actually the robotic ones that were done by the the Soviet Union at the time. Um, And they actually, uh, not many people realise this, but the the Soviet Union actually did send uh, a sample return mission of their own. It was just robotic. Um, Luna 16, 20 and 24 all returned a sample Mm. from the moon. Um, After that, it was about another 37 years, I think it is, before somebody actually went back to the moon. Um, And that was Chang'e 3 Mm. um, a couple of years ago. Um, and that is the the first stage of uh, China's Chang'e program. Um, they've currently sent two rovers, one to the near side, the last to the far side. Um, they've uh, grown the first plants on the surface of the moon, mm. um, which was one of the experiments on Chang'e four. And uh, Chang'e five is is going back in a minute and hoping to do a, another sample return mission. Um, so again, a robotic one. Um, but that's all part of their plan to to eventually send their own uh, taikonauts, as mm. they're called. Um, English speakers have astronauts, the Russians have cosmonauts, mm. and the Chinese have Taikonauts. Um, Indian ones are called Vyomnauts, I believe, as well. Oh, uh, right. Which, they, which they are ones that are name. going to be coming in ask. a bit. Vyomnauts. Vyomnauts. Nice. I think that's how that's you pronounce good. it, yeah. um, oh, which awesome. is sans- Sanskrit for space. Um, okay. But that's, that's all part of the, the Chinese plan to, to get a human onto the surface of the moon and eventually onto Mars. And, of course, mm. NASA have their own program. They've been for, for several uh, mm. the past couple of decades, they've been trying to sort of slowly work towards a more permanent um, lunar mission. Because one of the big problems that you had with Apollo was it was so big, it was such a big moment, that the problem that you have when you have a big moment like that is once the moment's passed, everybody stops caring.
1: Mm, yeah. um,
2: and that was what happened with the Apollo missions is after Apollo 11 nobody was really paying attention anymore and, and just there wasn't the political will and people weren't, mm.
0: didn't want to go back. A while ago I was uh, I was interviewing um Jack Clemens, who was an Apollo engineer at the time, and he said that uh, for Apollo 13, no one paid any attention until until it went wrong. Mm. Mm. Mm.
2: It's like if you've ever seen the film, there's the sort of like nobody cares, it's not on any of the news channels, and then suddenly... Yeah, Everybody's paying attention. Mm, mm. Um, but this time, uh, NASA are planning a much more long-term plan, get to the moon, put potentially put some kind of permanent base down there, whether that's a robotic one or a human one or some kind of combination of the two, which is most likely, um, and then eventually go on to Mars. Um, their big plan is the Artemis mission, and that's the plan to, to put a human down, um, specifically the first woman down, Mm. Um, by 2024, mm-hmm. probably a bit of an ambitious date.
3: <laughs> probably
2: going to be more like 2028, 2030. Mm. Um, but uh, that, that they're aiming for 24. Um, I, wow. I, I really like the name uh, Artemis as well because it's Artemis in Greek mythology was the twin sister of Apollo. Oh, no, that's
3: nice. Like... Yeah, that's <laughs> good so name, it's both it?
2: that kind of yeah. harking back to Apollo and also the fact they're trying to put the first woman yeah. on the moon as well. And uh, in order to get to the moon, they're going to use this thing called the Lunar Gateway, which is sort of a a space station which goes between um, Earth and uh, – it's it's around the moon and and you can go to the gateway and then go down to the moon. Mm. Um, Mm. Nice. So, again, it's a part of that long-term goal. Yeah. Um, And they are in the process of starting to build that now. Yes. So, hopefully, we'll see that coming in the future.
3: And they, of course, are getting on with their – their vehicle for that aren't they the the um, SLS rocket and the, the Orion the, capsule the
2: space launch system which is a very straightforward name yes um, or SLS <laughs> which is their their answer to the the Saturn V um, or is
3: it or, I mean, it's almost the size of a Saturn it's five, almost it? the size of a, that's yeah. one
2: of the things that always kind of gets me is they have this incredibly huge rocket mm. and we can't build one of those now we don't know how but it's it's also because each Saturn V cost something like a billion dollars
0: each. Yeah. <laughs>
2: they were a little yeah. bit expensive, yeah. um, which is why they stopped building them.
0: Mm, mm. It's also cool that when you can hear about um, kind of discoveries of water ice and the far side and how that could be used, you know, potentially to. Mm.
2: Uh, as, a, of, as
0: a resource if you had a base base on the moon. Yeah, in yeah. the
2: shadows of the craters. Yeah. Water yeah. mm, mm. is very useful. Not only do people drink it, you split it apart and you get rocket fuel.
0: Yeah. Or, and
2: the, or oxygen and to oxygen? breathe. oxygen? Would that yeah. work? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Cool. It's, um, I think actually there's a there's going to be a thing on one of the, the Mars rovers, Mars 2020, I think, which is the NASA one, um, like a little experiment to see whether they can do that
1: yeah. mm. with,
2: um, with the carbon dioxide in Mars' atmosphere. Awesome. So that's, you know, sort of looking even further forward because that's now everybody, when you talk about getting people onto the moon, it's always looking forward to getting people to onto Mars.
0: That's the thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Apollo 11 is has been this incredibly um, historic moment and it's it's been one of those moments that... Everybody remembers where they were when the landing happened. So this month, we asked people to get in touch via our social media pages to let us know what they were doing during the Apollo 11 landing. Um, Here's a few of our favourites.
0: Yeah, uh, John Dickinson um, got in touch on Facebook and he had a really interesting story because his dad was working at the uh, Honeysuckle Creek tracking station, which is in Australia near Canberra. And it was um, an Earth station that helped NASA um, uh, track Apollo 11 and also played a part in broadcasting the, the TV footage. Um, and he said, I was five years old. My dad wasn't home because he was working at the Honeysuckle Creek tracking station, receiving the signal from Apollo. Children from my preschool came to our home and we watched the first humans land on the moon. I remember being very proud of my dad, even though I didn't understand how he was helping. Oh, oh <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> Lovely.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, there's quite a few sort of people who were, were very young, because obviously it was 50 years ago, um, but they still managed to remember it. Like Angie Jukes, I was four years old and being told by my brother... You'll want to remember this as cool parquet flooring pressed into my legs, sitting cross-legged, watching a grainy image. Tranquility base, the eagle has landed, meant nothing to me at four, but raises hair every time I hear
0: it. Definitely. You, you, you do still get that kind of goose bumpy effect from, from the Apollo stuff.
2: Yeah.
4: Also on Facebook, uh, slightly older, um, David Jones, who is nine years old, um, says, I was nine years old at primary school in Greenwich. My teacher was a keen amateur astronomer, Mr. McGee. I already had an interest from the Apollo 8 missions, so he let me and some friends watch coverage on a large TV in the library. We later went to the Royal Observatory about a mile away, and I remember us all looking up at the moon and realising there were two men stood on it. Wow, that must have been some powerful telescopes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think,
2: yeah, yeah. that that's sort of the feeling of being able to to, to go out and look up and know if there's people walking on that right now. That must be yeah. incredible, is yeah. not yeah. yeah.
3: That's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um The one I, I particularly liked um was um Andrew Graysman um, who said um, I remember not being allowed to stay up and watch the landing. No. I was ten I was ten years old and my parents were uninterested. My argument that it was history in the making did not go down well with my mother, who said, "It will still be history tomorrow."
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's, that's one of the most parental things (laughs) I think I've ever heard.
3: (laughs) And those are days when they didn't even have any videos; they didn't even have VCRs back then, did they? So you couldn't watch it back in the iPlayer. That was it. (laughs) Luckily, it has
2: it has proliferated, and you can find it everywhere, on the internet, and it'll be all over yeah, TV, I'm sure. yeah. I'm, that's right, yeah. Um, so thank you to everybody who sent those in. If you have anything you'd like to ask us here on Radio Astronomy, you can drop us a line via our Facebook page, our Twitter handle, at Sky Night Mag, or email us at at contactusatskynightmagazine.com.
4: Those who were lucky enough to watch the moon landings might remember James Burke, who reported on all the missions for the BBC. We caught up with him ahead of his appearance at the Blue Dot Festival. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk about the Apollo mission this morning. Pleasure. Can I begin by asking what it was like being chief reporter of the team covering this epic event for the BBC, which had a UK audience of 22 million viewers?
1: Well, I suppose scary in one word, because it was one of those things where you only got one shot at it. You know, if you've got something stupid or wrong that was it. I mean, it was live and it was a very big audience and you couldn't afford to make mistakes. So I suppose the atmosphere in the studio was, 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 was nervous, perhaps is the best word.
4: (laughs) Okay. And it, it must have been one of the BBC's first all night broadcasts.
1: It was indeed. I mean, after they landed, I was the guy really responsible for following everything on the flight plan. And it became clear not long after they touched down that they were not doing the things you do when you're preparing to go to sleep. They were doing the things you do when you're preparing to get out. And uh, we went off the air during that period. And I went up to the gallery and control gallery and said, listen, guys, they're doing stuff that you do when you get out. And they said, you do realize that if we stay on, this will be the first time on air all night. And if they don't get out, your job is ended. And I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and, they, and they did. I mean, because they, they were going supposed to have a sleep, and so were we. But they didn't. So we stayed on the air that night 11 at night until ten thirty the next morning
4: can you describe what it was like in the studio when the lunar module crew landed and took their first steps
1: uh w- well sort of relief because most of apollo 11 was radio program really i mean there was only one tv broadcast on the way out and then there was going to be two and a half hours on the moon's surface and then one coming back so although we were on the air a great deal listening to what they were talking about it was really much more listening and explaining than anything else And that's nervous making, because, you know, the one thing you never want to do is to talk when an astronaut's talking, but you don't know when they're going to talk. So you were speaking, but with one ear very cocked to hear if they were drawing breath to say something, and then you'd shut up. And landing was 13 minutes from 50,000 feet down to the surface. Landing was entirely sound only, and there was a lot going on. And it was, you know, a bit, bit sweaty, because this was the riskiest bit of the entire mission. And we couldn't see anything and we could only hear what they were hearing from the capsule communicator. The private line between them and the flight director's loop, we couldn't hear. So we didn't know how many things were happening on the way down that were really hairy. I mean, we knew what we thought was pretty hairy and then they landed and then we saw the pictures and then things got much easier because, you know, once they're out there bouncing around and talking, you can shut up.
4: (laughs) Can you describe what the studio was like?
1: Well, there was there was the studio was you know a big empty studio with what we thought was a futuristic set. It looks very old fashioned now, and really just Patrick Moore and me, and uh, Sir Bernard Lovell at uh, Jodrell Bank by link, and uh, you know the three of us uh, talked talked our way through. Um, there was we had backup movie. I mean, I'd been to Houston and the Cape before each mission and filmed you know, everything that moved, talked to everybody who would talk, and if it wasn't a person, I got into it, You know, like spacecraft and so on. So there was a lot of backup film to run, which we used from time to time when, for example, they were sleeping, but we were on the air, or when we thought there wasn't much happening and that they wouldn't be talking much. We ran a bit of stuff, either interviews with the astronauts themselves or with mission controllers the scientists, geologists and so on at Houston. So there was, there was a lot of juggling going on.
4: And um, were there any surprises during the broadcast?
1: Well, there was only one big surprise, and except it wasn't big because we didn't realise there were much bigger ones going on that we didn't know about, when the computer alarms came up uh, towards the, the middle or the end of the final descent, uh, what was called 1201 and 1202. And they sounded quite scary, uh, but we didn't realise that what they were was simply an overlap of a couple of radar systems and Houston turned one off and then everything was okay. But for a moment or two, that sounded a bit scary because they were getting down towards the surface. But what we didn't know was much more scary than that. And that was that when they separated from the mother craft, um, the docking tunnel between the two spacecraft contains air, of course. And then you go into the lunar module, you shut the door, shut the hatch between you and the docking tunnel. But when they did that, there was more air in the docking tunnel than they thought, and it kind of pushed the lunar module a little bit more than was supposed to. So they were going sort of three or four seconds ahead of their schedule on the way down, which meant that when they got down there quite late on, like 2,000 feet up, they realized that they were going to be landing four miles past the lunar landing site. Uh, the landing site was well covered by photographs and descriptions and blah, blah from Apollo 10, but that was going to be no good. And I heard uh, all I heard give us a clue was, was Armstrong at one point saying boulders. Now, the one thing that was supposed to be of the landing site was no boulders, so we knew there was something wrong, but didn't know what. And what in fact was happening was that they were four miles long, and at the point where they would have been landing on a site, they were over a big boulder field and couldn't. So he had to find somewhere himself. A landing site nobody knew anything about, just beyond the boulders, and you know he he put the landing craft down there, the, the lunar module. Uh, after two hundred and forty thousand miles in three days journey, he landed there with nineteen seconds of fuel left, and that's what you call nerves of steel. And we didn't know that, you know, we thought we thought it was hairy enough.
4: You visited the Kennedy Space Center for Tomorrow's World in nineteen sixty eight. Could you describe what it was like actually sitting in the Apollo command module?
1: Yes, small. I mean, you realize that those guys have to be extremely um, psychologically very stable people to spend three days with three guys. No, eight days, really, with three guys in a thing that small. I mean, it was as small as the inside of a Volkswagen Beetle. And that's pretty small. And I mean, even getting in and looking around and being able to move freely. They all said, of course, it was made much easier by zero gravity because you could float into funny little positions where you could never have been had there been any gravity. So they said it kind of doubled the size. But even so, it's a very, very small spacecraft.
4: The current Radio Times is running an editorial um, that you wrote to accompany The Moon Landing, uh, 50 years ago, um, yes. alongside a, a new editorial. And it's interesting to see in the original that there's a glossary of terms. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and... How important was that at the time and, in in a general sense, the educational side of the Apollo 11 mission?
1: The, well, the glossary of terms was there because, you know, the general public didn't know any of these words at all because we had not done many bro- broadcasts. But, you know, during Apollo 11, on the rare occasion when you got to go out of the television centre, in a cab, the taxi drivers were using phrases like mid-course correction, you know, which they'd never <laughs> used before. And everybody suddenly got turned on to this, this new language. In terms of its general effect, I believe, and I think a lot of the people in the educational world have told me, that Apollo 11 really boosted the interest of young, young people in science and technology in general. And I think they, they feel boosted the number of people going on to university to study science and technology rather than the arts. So I think it had that major effect.
4: And 50 years on, what do you feel is the most important legacy of the moon landing?
1: Well, clearly, of course, that view of the planet, which then became known as the blue dot in the middle of nothing, and an awareness that this is the only place we have and there's nowhere else easy to go to, so we better look after it. And the other thing I think was was often not talked about, management. NASA got 300,000 people in 2,500 companies to design and build five million and five and a half million separate bits to make up the launch vehicle and the spacecraft and all of those bits had to fit together in what then became known as zero defect engineering and they managed that and i think if anything apollo did far more for management than it did for science and technology
4: you're appearing at this year's blue dot festival um taking place very soon Um,
1: at uh, jodrell bank what are you looking forward to fortunately i don't have to work very hard i'm going to be interviewed Um, But I think they're going to run clips of stuff. And sometimes you forget you did something. (laughs) You're not happy to see it again. (laughs) Uh, I'm thinking particularly of my weightless flight, which I look back on with horror (laughs) the way Uh, I did it.
4: (laughs) To finish, can I ask you what it was like when you visited NASA at Kennedy Space Center? Was the security intense and was it difficult getting in?
1: Yes. Well, first of all, it was very easy to get into the press center, of course. And I mean, that's a big difference between NASA and the Russians. I mean, you know, I, I went to Moscow a few times to Star City, and everything was heavy security, and you did nothing without clearance, and clearance was only given usually for you to talk to a pre-scripted uh, general. There's no question of looking around. NASA was exactly the opposite. I mean, if, if a door was open and a person was standing there, you'd go through the door and talk to the person. Uh, the only doors you couldn't go through at any old time was in the mission control room itself, because if they were doing something, they certainly didn't want pokey journalists coming in. But when they weren't uh, online, as it were running a mission, you could walk in there and do anything you liked. So it was an extraordinarily open environment. However, of course it was an open environment because NASA, you know, NASA needed the, the support from the press because they needed the support from public opinion because they needed the money. And, and, you know, Part of NASA's openness was to make sure the public continued to be excited by the project and therefore continue to approve the expenditure.
2: That was James Burke. To find out more about what happened during the Apollo missions as a whole, why not pick up our special edition, The Apollo Story, on sale now. There's lots to see in the night sky this month, which you can read all about in our Sky Guide. But of course, with the Apollo 11 anniversary, most people are going to have their eyes on our nearest neighbour, the Moon. The pitted lunar surface is covered with interesting craters and mountains to see, but the best time to look for them is when the line between the light and dark side of the moon, known as the Terminator, is nearby. It just so happens that on the night of the landing's anniversary, the 20 to the 21st of July, the Terminator will be perfectly paced in the Sea of Tranquility to show off the Apollo 11 landing site. Grab a moon map or the Apollo observing guide in the August issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine and use landmarks such as craters and lunar mare to find them. Though we are much too far away to make out the landers on the surface, even with the world's most powerful telescopes, you can still see the area where the team touched down. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about Apollo 11 in the July and August issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we give you a rundown of the Apollo 11 mission, talk to a geologist who is studying freshly unfrozen Apollo moon rock samples, and take a look back at the mission's legacy. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. Don't forget, you can learn more about the Apollo program as a whole in our special edition, The Apollo Story, or follow our coverage of the event on our website, www.skyatnightmagazine.com. From all of us here at BBC Sky Night Magazine, goodbye.
3: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.